Well, good morning. Hey, Matt, can you show only the the slide, not you know, just the the slide and not the. Oh, okay, good. Oh, cool. Well, some of you were here last week and some of you weren't. So I'm going to do a a little bit of review. Um, Since I was teaching two weeks in a row, um, I decided to do two topics that I felt were weak in um, many Christians' understanding. We're called to make a defense. First Peter 3.15 says, Always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that he has, for the hope that is in you. So last week, um, I proposed the question, why do we believe in Jesus? And the majority of answers that are given by Christians, evangelical Christians, are very weak. They are, well, that's the way I was raised, or those love songs about Jesus are so moving, or I went forward in a crusade or a concert, or I wanted to please my parents, things like that. Last week, um, I presented... I believe, convincing, a convincing case from Scripture that the reason we should believe, the reason we do believe that Jesus is the Christ is because of the evidence that he presented. <clears throat> At the same time, evidence never converted anybody. So God uses means like we use tools, right? And so his means are people. And Jesus chose 12 men in particular to be his witnesses, the apostles. And everywhere they went, including Paul in Athens, they presented the same thing Jesus himself presented as reason to believe. And of course, the Holy Spirit used the word of God where the evidence is stored to bring about conversion. He was the one that worked in the heart. So the answer is to why do we believe in Jesus is because there's massive evidence in the Bible and in history but primarily in Scripture, that he did live, he was murdered on the cross, and he did rise again. So the resurrection is the premier evidence as to why we should believe in Jesus. Remember, and if you want to remind yourself, turn to John 20. This is just so indisputable that Jesus wanted people to believe in him, not because of their feelings, not because of some experience they had, not because of their parents took them to church, but because of the evidence. So you remember in this chapter, he appeared to the, the disciples, uh, came into the room where they were, and showed him, they, he immediately showed them his hands and his feet. That's the evidence. And Thomas wasn't there. So, verse 24 says, Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. 
Now, he's been called Doubting Thomas. That's not fair. He wasn't a doubter. He just said, I'm not going to believe unless you show me the evidence. Well, eight days later, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, <laughs> he addresses the group, peace be with you. And immediately he goes to Thomas. That's pretty revealing, isn't it? And what does he say? Thomas, remember all the miracles you saw me do? Remember all the prophecies about me that I fulfilled? You should just believe that I'm the Messiah. You've got plenty to, of reason to believe. He didn't say that. He says, reach here with your finger, see, see with your eyes, your hand, uh, my hands, and reach here with your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. Why? Because Thomas saw the evidence. Now, again, don't be confused. Evidence never converted anybody. And yet the next thing, Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Yes. Blessed are they who do not see and yet believed. So we are those and so we believe for the same reason. We see through the eyes of the apostles. It's recorded in Scripture, preserved by the Holy Spirit for us. So 2,000 years later, even though we weren't there, we can see. And remember Luke. Luke wrote his gospel, which we're going to refer to this morning. Luke wrote his gospel. Why? after having done a careful compilation of interviews that he did like an investigative journalist with, because he wasn't there, he wasn't even Jewish. He didn't see Jesus resurrected. But he interviewed all these eyewitnesses. That's what he says. And why did he make this very carefully researched, chronologically ordered record, report. Why did he do it? Anybody remember? He wrote it to this uh, probably Roman official by the name of Theophilus who had believed the gospel. Why did he write this? So that... Come on... What's the word? Certainty. Based on all the evidence that Luke recorded. Remember in Acts, Luke recorded chapter 1, verse 3. He also, Jesus also, presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over 40 days and speaking about the things concerning the kingdom of God. So why do we believe in Jesus? Because the Spirit of God recorded for us the evidence. And Jesus said, believe because you see the evidence. And the Holy Spirit uses the means of people seeing being eyewitnesses, writing it down, the church canonizing it, becoming the Word of God, the New Testament that we have. And so we read it and we believe. Okay, does anybody not get that? Anybody have any questions about that? Okay, good, wonderful. However, 
there's one issue here that we need to try to settle this morning. And that is, all of this is in the Bible. All of these convincing proofs. Jesus spent an extra 40 days. He could have ascended to heaven right after he revealed himself to Thomas, I guess. But he spent 40 more days with those followers. 500 people, right, saw him at one time, risen. Why did he spend 40 days? Why did he need to stay 40 more days? To give them further evidence. He wanted them to be so sure that when they were, went out there proclaiming the gospel and they were persecuted and they were attacked, that they would stand firm and solid and not back down. And they did. All this is in the Bible, though. How do we know the Bible is? Why do we believe the Bible? How do we know it's not like Bart Ehrman says, a bunch of legends and myths? So would you be able to make a defense to someone like we're commanded to do for the hope that we have? Our hope comes from the Bible, the Word of God. Would you be able to make a defense of to why you believe the Bible? Good. <laughs> well, I want to strengthen that today uh, very, very briefly. Um, but I want to put you to the test this morning. I'm sure that, you know, I know that most of you are longtime Christians and you've been studying God's word, so you have a good storehouse. So you know that you're supposed to be a Berean, right? What's a Berean? You go, oh, somebody lived in Berea, okay. The Bereans in Acts 17, Paul said that they were more noble than those who lived in Thessalonica. Why? Because they kind of checked him out to see if the things that he said were so. They investigated the scriptures, which they had was, was their Old Testament. So I want you to do that this morning. There's a prominent scientist, and he argues that we should not base our faith on evidence. Shouldn't. He says that's being an evidentialist. And he quoted these passages to convince people of his premise. First, he went to Matthew 4, Jesus being tempted. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Okay, there's, what's the devil doing there? What, what's his M.O.? If you're the son of God, which means God, then command these stones to be turned into bread. Perform a miracle. Prove it. And this scientist says, aha, Jesus could have turned the stones into bread he could have proved that he was the Messiah, but he didn't. He quoted scripture. And he answered and he said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So he said, see, that's what Jesus did. He didn't use evidence. He didn't use a miracle. He just quoted scripture. That's what we should do. And then he quoted Proverbs 1.7. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. Ignorant fools despise wisdom and discipline. And he quoted Colossians 2.3. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now based on those three passages, 
He really didn't give any others. His argument was, if we use evidence, we're using the wisdom of the world so that man by his own intellect and reasoning powers can defend the faith. He said, we should just quote scripture. I know, he says, we're going to be accused of circular reasoning. But they use circular reasoning too. And that was his argument. So, you be a Berean. Was he right? I see, uh-huh, I see, uh-uh. Yes, Gunner? For those listening, uh, Gunnar's pointing out archaeology and how the Pool of Siloam was discovered and the stones would cry out, that, uh, Jesus said. Okay, so, but that would be extra-biblical evidence. So that would be still using evidence to prove. Yes, Joey. Right. Jesus did do miracles, John says. Yes. Right. And where is the evidence we use? In the Bible. So it's not like, you know, there's two choices here. You can use evidence or the Bible. No, the evidence is in the Bible. Yes, Andrew. Or is the Bible. And it would have been in the Bible. Exactly. Right. Yes, Jeff? You know, I don't, I don't know his whole argument. My grandson pointed him out to me, and I went and listened, and he was speaking to a church. And, you know, I, I listened to his whole talk, but this was his point. And he was anti-evidentialists. So we got to hurry on here because we got a lot to cover. So um, let me just say, I am persuaded by Jesus' example and God's example really from the beginning. At least let's just go from Moses and the Exodus. Remember Moses said, well, what am I going to tell them about who sent me? How are they going to believe me? And what did God do? He gave him miracles to perform. Throw your staff down. Turns into a snake. Pick it up. Turns back into a snake. And so he does all these plagues all the way through. And finally, at the, the plague of the, the firstborn, the death of the firstborn, finally Pharaoh relents. Remember, even the magicians who were able for the first two or three plagues to reproduce it, after that they said, this is the finger of God. Why? Because they saw evidence that this was not humanly possible. And they believed it was the one true God. So all the way through, Elijah and Elisha, who's the true God? The one that sends fire down from heaven. Okay, Baal guys, come on, cut yourself all around. Maybe your God's on vacation. Maybe he's in the outhouse. Well, you can't do anything. Well, the real God shows himself by fire down from heaven. God has used evidences all the way through to verify for people that they can believe. Do you remember when Paul went to, uh, when he was in Athens in Acts 17, 
and he was up there on the Areopagus. Is that right? Acropolis, something like that. And uh, he is preaching. And he ends his sermon by saying, he, Yahweh, has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he determined, having furnished proof to all by raising him from the dead. The apostles preached the resurrection. When he went to Philippi, and he found that there weren't enough Jewish men there to have a, a synagogue, so they were meeting by the river, and there were some women there, and he preached the gospel. I assume he preached the resurrection, did everywhere else. And what happened? A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, meaning she was a follower of biblical Judaism. She believed in the God of the Jews. She was listening. What happened? Did the evidence convert her? The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Lord, please help us this morning to be clear in our minds about how you want to use us as means in your hands to preach the gospel, to teach your word, to plant seeds of truth in people's mind that is full of the evidence. And Lord, help us not to be intimidated by critics so that we are afraid to use extra-biblical evidence like the early church did to give reason why we believe the Bible is your word. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You do understand, if you think about it, you will, that the Bible was not, I'm going to refer to this a little more in a minute, but you see on there the Council of uh, Laodicea, 363 AD. So that's over 300 years after Jesus rose from the dead, and ascended to heaven. It was then that the early church decided on which books would be included in our New Testament. And the New Testament canon was formalized. Over 300 years later, so how did they come to those conclusions? How do we know the book of James, which Martin Luther kind of didn't like? Um, how do we know that these books are supposed to be the inspired word of God? How did they know 300 years later? They made tests. Logical tests, evidence-based tests. Was this author, did he really live? Was he a trustworthy person that he claims his book should be inspired. They used extra-biblical evidence to come to the conclusion of which books would be included in the New Testament. The, New, the Old Testament didn't name the books that are supposed to be in the New Testament. So they couldn't go to Scripture. They had to use extra-biblical evidence. And they did. And that's why we've got the books we've got. That's why the Apocrypha is not in there. That's why the Pseudepigrapha is not in there. It isn't, the Apocrypha is in the Catholic Bible. But even they admit it's not inspired. They just leave it in there to confuse people, I guess. So, why do we believe the Bible? I'm going to re reference this morning three sources. Josh McDowell, who clearly believes as I do, that evidence, we believe because of evidence, wrote a book years ago. Um, you can even get a PDF version at free online if you want to read it. I'd highly recommend it. It's called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. 
And then he wrote another book called More Evidence That Demands a Verdict. J. Warner Wallace, who is a cold case detective from LAPD, he was an atheist, became a Christian, and he is an apologist for evidentialism. And Lee Strobel, you've probably heard of him, he wrote The Case for Christ. So I'm going to reference these folks. J. Warner Wallace says this. Remember, he's been in court many times, uh, interviewing many witnesses and perpetrators. He says, witnesses never, ever, 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 ever agree. One of the objections to the New Testament is, the Gospels disagree. Wallace says, I could have, it could have happened five minutes ago but there will be variations in the testimonies. If I got five of you together to tell me what happened, you would not agree. That's the truth, he says. The fact that the Gospels did not agree in every detail when he was an atheist, he said, that had the ring of truth for me. As a detective, you have to have differing stories the stories have to differ because different people from different perspectives seeing different things, at, even at different times, when you put them all together, then you can discern what actually happened. And then he said, I thought this was really cool. But if you walked out of the grave, I'd go, I'd be listening to you. We're living in a culture that exalts personal experience, what we feel, we can't care about someone's experience. We can't care about how somebody feels. We have to care about what is true. What really happened to Jesus? What really did he do? What really did he say? And the Bible tells us. So, here are some objections to the Bible's trustworthiness. The Gospels disagree. In fact, I think it was Bart Ehrman that said, well, here's a number of quotes from Bart Ehrman, who was a, he's called a New Testament scholar, but he is a textual critic, which means he tries to find all the discrepancies and errors. He's not, real textual criticism is examining the manuscripts and comparing them and being able to come up with actually 99.5% accuracy of what the originals said. He's not doing that. He's trying to find all fault with it. He says, as time goes on, things get made up. So see, he, took, he takes the date of the church council and he says, look at how long it was. Oh, they had over 300 years to fabricate things, make up this myth. It's, in fact, one of his sayings is, sometimes Christian apologists say there are only three options as to who Jesus was. Lord, liar, lunatic, right? Actually, first time I heard that was from Josh McDowell. And he says, well, maybe there's a fourth. Legend. He's just a legend. It never really happened that way. They just made it up. He says the Gospels were written late. See, he puts the writing time of the Gospels in the, around 300. And so he says, therefore, it's too long for the true events to be remembered and recounted by eyewitnesses. So you know what? Textual scholars agree. There are thousands of discrepancies you know what? It doesn't matter. I'm going to show you why in a minute. So the objection, the Gospels don't agree with each other. So how many women were at the tomb? One? Two? Depends on the Gospel that you read. How many angels were at the tomb? One? Two? Depends on the Gospel that you read. 
The four Gospels don't agree on everything. Remember that sign that was on the cross? Only six words. If you read what the sign said out of the four Gospels, they have it different. Just slightly different. So that's an objection. So let me give you the first reason to believe that the Bible is the Word of God. And this is mostly from Josh McDowell. He quotes F.F. Bruce. Bruce says, The Bible at first sight appears to be a collection of literature, mainly Jewish. The Bible was written at intervals over 1,400 years. The writers wrote in various lands, from Italy in the west to Mesopotamia and possibly Persia in the east. The writers themselves were a differing group of people, not only separated from each other by hundreds of years and hundreds of miles, but belonging to the most diverse walks of life. In their ranks, we have kings, herdsmen, soldiers, legislators, fishermen, statesmen, courtiers, priests, and prophets, a tent-making rabbi and a Gentile physician, not to speak of others of whom we know nothing apart from the writings they have left us. The writings themselves belong to a great variety of literary types. They include history, law, civil law, criminal law, ethical law, ritual law, sanctuary law, religious poetry, didactic treatises, lyric poetry, parable, allegory, biography, personal correspondence, personal memoirs, and diaries, in addition to the distinctively biblical types of prophecy and apocalyptic literature. F.F. Bruce's point is there is no other writing like this. The Bible is unique. It's unique in its literary genre. There's narrative, there's commandment, there's disputatious letters. Paul's letters are pretty disputatious, corrective. There's dialogue, there's wisdom, there's logic, there's reasoning. So it's unique in literary genre. It's unique in language, three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, Koine Greek. Hebrew is a pictorial language in which the past is not merely described, but verbally painted. Not just a landscape is presented, but a moving panorama. Aramaic is linguistically very close to Hebrew and similar in structure. The Greek language, the Koine Greek language, common Greek, which some historians tell us was sort of invented by Alexander the Great. Here he wants to conquer the world, and he's coming from these city-states in Macedonia and lower Greece, and they speak different dialects. And so he wants to go out when he has his army, and he says, forward march. He wants them all to know what he's saying. So he had some scholars put together the common Greek, which was the language of the whole Middle Eastern world at the time of Christ. The Greek language is rich and beautiful and very accurate. It's got a vocabulary and a style that can be really clear. Clarifies phenomena rather than simply telling stories. So the Bible is unique in language. The Bible is unique in its message. The Bible is the sole source of the message that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Craig Hazen, who is the founder and director of Biola University Master of Arts in Christian Education or Christian Apologetics Program, states, Christianity is unique in its offer of salvation by grace alone, a free gift from God to anyone who will receive it. In the history of religion, there have only been a couple of instances of a religious movement that considered salvation or enlightenment to be, to be a free gift from a deity. Only a couple. But even in those cases, such as 
Amida Buddhism or a certain form of Bhakti Hinduism, there are strings attached. You still have to work for it. Hence, the Christian tradition stands in a solitary spot in the spectrum of world religions when the Apostle Paul writes, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you are saved. If you've been saved through faith, it's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works so that any man can boast. So the message of the Bible, the gospel, is unique. No other, quote, religious message is like this. It's unique in many other ways. It's unique in its great impact on Western civilization. More than any other writing, the Bible has influenced governments, law, science, education, art, literature, music, societal norms and values. It's unique in its circulation. It's been translated into more other languages than any other writing. It's unique in its survival. It survived through persecution, through criticism of skeptics, even attempts like on Kristallnacht in Germany to physically eradicate it. So the uniqueness of the Bible is evidence of its divine inspiration. Then there's the, the, there's the, the eyewitnesses. J. Warner Wallace has four tests for eyewitnesses. Remember, he said, I never believe in a witness. I never trust a witness. Not until I've tested them first. And if they pass the test, then, then I'll believe them. If you, he says, if you say to me, I don't trust Bible, the Bible's eyewitnesses, I'm with you. I never trust an eyewitness. Not until they've been tested. If they pass the test, then we trust them. So J. Warner Wallace has four tests for, for witnesses. Were they present? Were they actually there to see what they claim to have seen? Two, is their testimony corroborated by outside sources? Three, do they give an accurate report? Four, are they biased? Do they have a hidden agenda? Josh McDowell offers four additional tests. So let me go take you through these tests real quickly. First is the intention test. This test evaluates whether the purported story was written with the intention of being treated as a historical fact. For instance, nobody treats the boy who cried wolf as a historical story because it fails the intention test. It was written to communicate a lesson, not as a historical account. What about the story of Jesus? Are Jesus' biographies written merely for non-historical purposes, to convey wise sayings, for example? The Gospels do not leave us with that impression. The introduction of the book of Luke gives a clear indication, which we've already mentioned, of its purpose, certainty regarding Christ. And it's based on eyewitnesses. So that's the intention test. Then the ability test, which is kind of like the presence test that Wallace has. The only way they would have the ability to give a testimony about what they saw is if they were there to see it. That's the only way. So do they have the ability by having been present? Matthew was one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. Mark was an associate of Peter, a disciple of Jesus. Luke was a companion to Paul who claimed to have had a personal encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. John was also a disciple of Jesus, one of the inner three of the 12 alongside Peter. Who better to be the eyewitnesses than those men who were with him for three years and then after his resurrection? 
they, they pass the ability test. Then there's the character and, or accuracy test. Perhaps they intended for their story to be taken as historical fact, but intentionally lied. Did they have malicious intent that would produce an altered version of what actually happened, and therefore their testimony was not accurate to the reality? For the gospel writers, there is no good reason to su suggest that this was the case. The stories that they write point toward an incredibly high standard of moral living. We're not expecting, remember last week I told you that philosophers say that the only realm in which you can have proof is math and philosophy. You can have arguments that become proofs. Well, we're not expecting math proof, just reasonable proof. That's what they use in the court system. Is this person guilty beyond reasonable doubt? And apparently, judges instruct jurors on exactly what that means and how what you should, why you should believe that it's beyond reasonable doubt. Well, we believe that the Bible is God's word because it's beyond reasonable doubt. There's no other reasonable explanation for how this book was written and how it, all its uniqueness and so on. Then there's the consistency test. Well, Wallace agrees there's inconsistencies in the Bible. And Josh McDowell does too, but McDowell says when you compare them all, they basically come up agreeing. All in all, the stories of Jesus are similar enough that they pass the consistency test. And I'm going to show you the, the wonderful thing that God has done for us in just a moment. Then there's the bias test. Do the authors, do they, do they demonstrate a bias, a, a hidden agenda? some personal reason why they're making things up. They were devoted followers of Jesus, fully committed to him, to his teachings, willing to die. If they knew that it was a lie and they were making it up, is it reasonable to think that they would die for what they knew was not true? I don't think so. The cover-up test, Lee Strobel in his book, The Case for Christ, he says when people testify about events they saw, they will often try to protect themselves or others from being attacked, being ashamed, being embarrassed by their own failures. So they try to cover things up. And when they do that, then their, the veracity of their whole testimony comes into question. Yet the biographies of Jesus in the Gospels contain many embarrassing details the disciples included about themselves. They clearly didn't try to cover up their faults, their weaknesses, their stupidity. Then there's a corroboration test, and this is where what Gunnar said, archaeology, comes in. For the last, over the last hundred years, it's been said, and I don't remember, I was over in Israel taking a course in, in biblical archaeology at the, the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. And one of the professors there said, there has been no archaeological discovery, none, that has proven the Bible to be false. There was a discovery of a stella, which was a, a stone, like a, sort of like a gravestone with writing on it. And it recorded Pontius Pilate as reigning in Jerusalem, but 10 years before the time that Jesus was at his trial. So all the critics said, ah, we found it. Now we know the Bible is false. And then later on, another archaeological discovery found another Stella that said he was governor of Judea at the time Jesus was tried. So what was, what was he had two terms in office. 
separated by some time where he wasn't in office. All the way through, archaeology has confirmed the scriptures. Then there's the adverse witness test, which is considered to be the most difficult one to pass. What do the critics have to say about the Bible? What are the people who don't believe it? Do they admit that, that it's, there's truth in it? What arguments do they offer? Craig Blomberg, who's a distinguished professor of New Testament, quoted in Strobel's book, says, some Jewish writers claim that Jesus was a sorcerer who led Israel astray. They could have just claimed that the miracles never happened and that it was all a conspiracy, a bunch of legendary tales. But they didn't. They said he was a sorcerer. Now, what does that tell you? Something miraculous must have happened. So there you have the critics. Now, I want you to look at this slide. The church council was 363 A.D. when the canon was formalized. A.D. 70, we know for sure, was the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. A.D. 69 was this horrific siege by the Romans against Jerusalem. And I mean, it's probably worse than the Hamas thing they've done at least in its extent, how many people were killed, how many Jews were tortured and raped and killed. Well, you know what? Luke did not include those events in his history. And then the death of Paul, the death of Peter, both the two most prominent leaders of the church, Paul, 64 to 67 A.D., Peter, in that same span. Luke says nothing about that. Wouldn't he have, if he's trying to help Theophilus have certainty, wouldn't he include they died just like Jesus said they would die? He didn't say a thing about it. And then James. Oh, this is, by the way, the brother of Jesus, James. He died in 61. Luke says nothing about him. And Luke writes his gospel around 60 AD. Excuse me, he writes Acts around 60 AD. So he's writing before all these things happen. Why would he not include them? These are massive. The implications are huge for the early church. And around 53 AD, Lucas or Luke wrote the gospel. So why did he not include that? That is a key date. You ever wonder why those dates are in the beginning part of your study Bible? Though this early date of the gospel of Luke is debated, there is ample evidence, both internal, that is within the scripture, and from external sources to have confidence in this dating. This puts Luke writing approximately 20 years after the resurrection of Christ, well within the time frame for most of the eyewitnesses to still be living and for fact-checkers to be readily available. The eyewitnesses, the majority of them, John says... Some have fallen asleep, but most of them were still living. So easy to check. Easy to test the witnesses. Nobody ever came forward claiming to be a witness that the things recorded in Scripture didn't happen. Nobody ever did. Well, I'm not going to take the time to go through even the few archaeological evidences that I could present to you. But there have been inscriptions on images, on pillars, on statues that have been found that list people. You know, the Bible, the, the New Testament, especially the Gospels and Acts, mention places and people's names and time periods. And those can be 
checked and verified by archaeology, and they have been. There have been a number, the Hittites, for example, they were viewed by critics as never having existed, just a fantasy. And then, in 1843, I think it was, archaeologists discovered a Hittite palace. Oh, I guess the Bible's right again. That's what archaeology did. King Shishak of Egypt, mentioned in Kings, 1 Kings 14, confirmed by archaeology. King Tiglath-Pileser III of Assyria, mentioned in 2 Kings 15 and 1 Chronicles 5, confirmed by archaeology. Five Hebrew kings, Uzziah, Ahaz, Menachem, Pekah, and Hoshea, confirmed by archaeology. So we could go on. But I wanted to get to this. Many, 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 many manuscripts. Look at this. So on the left, you have the author of some ancient document, including some names you're familiar with. Aristotle, Homer, Caesar, Demosthenes, Herodotus. When they wrote the earliest copy do you get that? Not the original. The earliest copy. Now, how much time was there between the earliest copy of these ancient documents and the original? For Lucretius, 1,100 years of time went by till, the, till we get the first copy that was discovered somewhere. Look at all those others. 750 years, 1,300 years, 1,000 years, 1,400 years, then you get to the New Testament. Less than 100 years. And I would say a lot less than 100 years. But look at the number of copies. Nobody questions the Iliad. And that had the most copies, 643. Some of them, there's two or eight or ten. And we read those and we go, oh, yeah, okay. That must be it. Look at the New Testament. 5,600 manuscripts, which means copies of copies of copies. Look at the accuracy. Homer's Iliad. There's, there was enough copies of there to, to compare them to each other, to come up with... Accuracy, 95%. Well, that's pretty good. The Bible, 99.5% accuracy. And you go, oh, wait a minute, what about that 0.5%? Well, that's like the difference between one place, one manuscript says Jesus Christ. Another one says Christ Jesus. One manuscript of the Old Testament said there were 500 at this battle. Another one says there were 1,500 at this battle. Ooh. Actually, we had some elders at our church because of that very thing who said they didn't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture and left our church. And they started with a battle and different numbers. The defense that I offered was, couldn't it be that the first accounting was just of the soldiers and the second was of the soldiers and all the support people? You know, all the wagon drivers and all the, the, the herdsmen for the donkeys and the They didn't have mules, donkeys. So couldn't that explain it? So the 5.5% inaccuracy affects no doctrine of Scripture, not one. So how, does this, how do we get to this accuracy thing? Well, Jay Warner Wallace, I think, gives a really great illustration. He says, my son was a doctor, student, and he was short on money. So he said, I was driving in my car and I texted him and I used Siri. My first text says, I have $5,000 you need. Meet me at Starbucks on Main Street next Wednesday at 4 p.m. That's what he spoke into the phone. Siri typed out, 
I have percent 000.00 you need. Meet me at Starving on Main Street, Wednesday at 4 p.m. He looks at it and he goes, the son responds back, I don't understand. So he goes, okay, second text, Siri again. I have the $5,000 you need. Meet me at Starbucks on Main Street next weakness at 4 p.m. So he texts the third one. I have the $5,000, you nerds. Meet me at Starbucks on Main Street next Wednesday at 4 p.m. Son writes back, you're so funny. He does a fourth text. I have $5,000 you need. Meet me at Starbucks on Main Streak next Wednesday. And he goes, now now I'm streaking down the street naked. Fifth text, I have the $5,000 you need. Meek me at Starbucks on Main Street next Wednesday at 4 (laughs) p.m. The son goes, all right already. The point, if you think of those as manuscripts, you can compare them all and you can get the message. The son understood. His dad had $5,000 for him. They were to meet at Starbucks next Wednesday on Main Street, 4 p.m. That's what the textual good, the biblically unbiased, objective textual critics do with those 5,600 manuscripts. They compare them, compare them. One place it says this. This uses a little bit different word. Maybe they've added, uh, you know, a pronoun here or something. And they put together with 99.5% accuracy what the original New Testament said. So what does that mean for us? I've only given you just the tip of the iceberg of extra-biblical reasons why we should believe the Bible to be the inspired word of God. But don't forget, it is the Spirit of God working in the heart. More often in the Bible, God speaks to the heart, which in the Bible means the core of a person's being, his ability to think, to have affection and desire and to choose. Thinking, desiring, choosing. That's the heart. All of it together. The Bible talks about the mind quite a lot, but at least approximately five times as many times it speaks about the heart. Again and again, God speaks of the importance of humility of the heart. He warns of the danger of developing a hardened heart. God wants to speak to us on a heart-to-heart level. Not just an intellectual level. So that we may respond to him with our whole person. Romans 10, 6-11 says this. The righteousness of faith speaks in this way. And understand, the righteousness of faith is not faith based on me trying to be good or thinking I'm a good person, but of receiving Christ's gift by faith. So the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will go up to heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will go down into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth, in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. The Bible, which is full of all these evidences and eyewitnesses. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, there's the evidence. If you believe that in your heart, you will be saved. I rest my case. For with the heart a person believes, leading to righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, leading to salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes upon him will not be put to shame. 
So remember, a person can know all the evidence. A person can be a highly moral person. They can follow a religion and not be born again. They can go to a Christian church and not be born again. So, what should you do if you're not sure that you have genuinely been born again? What should you do? Cry out to God like the one man did to Jesus. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Read the Bible. And then read it some more. Go to church. Bring your Bible. Listen. Find some genuine Christians to hang out with. And keep on asking God to open your spiritual eyes so that you can see. Because the scripture says, whoever believes upon him will not be put to shame. Lord, thank you so much that you have made it really hard to believe. And yet, when your Holy Spirit is drawing us, convicting us, like you said he would do, Lord Jesus, then it's easy. You give us the gift of faith, and we just have to choose to exercise it. Thank you so much for your word that is so full of all the evidences, the convincing proofs, the reasons to believe. And we just pray that you would give us boldness and confidence to speak the gospel to all of those that we encounter in gentleness, in humility, and in love. Amen.